0: Hi, friends. This is episode 26 of the Bible Lab Podcast.
1: You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice.
0: Hey, everybody, thanks so much for joining us again for another transformational conversation. Now, before we get into today's podcast, I just want to remind you don't forget to go to thebibelab.com and make sure you're able to get the PDF study guide so you can follow along with where we're going and see some of the unique words and phrases that we're going to break apart this week because we are going to have some fun. Most people don't realize how much fun Jesus was having. In In his first sermon, but people were laughing and looking at each other like, is this guy for real? He does not preach the same way that all of our rabbis do. He actually uses a lot of humor, which was definitely not something that you would do back in that time. But Jesus continues his sermon here, talking about things that are salty and not. And when you hear what Jesus actually said, uh, I think you're going to be just as surprised as I was this past week when I did the word study and realized that Jesus was using a common phrase and one that was not as flattering or as dull as we, we typically read through some of these phrases. So I can't wait for you to get into it. God bless you guys. I'm so thankful to be on this journey with you. Definitely connect with us on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We want to hear your stories too, and we want to see how we can help you on your journey. So definitely connect with us in that way. So thank you so much. I invite you to prepare your heart right now. Say a little silent prayer that the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart specifically and tell you some of the things that you need right now in your development of understanding the character of God. So glad you're with us. Welcome to the Bible Lab. All right, let's do this. Number one, it's best not to talk about religion or politics at the workplace. You guys, I think that was the fastest I've ever seen the cards fly into the air. <laughs> A vast majority of you are saying yes. It looks like about 90, 90% yes. And then the nose and the, and the I don't no's or maybe's are split. Kind of five and five percent. Very good. All right. Uh, especially now, you know, I grew up. With people saying it's best not to talk about religion or politics at school or the workplace, whatever. Uh, I had no idea the climate that we would come to today to where it would be dangerous, (laughs) like life threatening, to, to talk about politics. Number two, had Jesus given the Sermon on the Mount today, he would have called us to be Mrs. Dash instead of Salt. How many of you, I'm going to put your cards down. How many of you know what Mrs. Dash is? This is a healthy blue zone, isn't it? Mrs. Dash, the salt substitute. You'll find it way down on the dusty bottom aisle right beneath all the salt. Yes. Okay. Number three, Jesus would prefer to not work with spiritual idiots. Jesus would prefer to not work with spiritual idiots. Oh, I'm seeing a sea of of orange. No, you're saying Jesus wants to work with spiritual idiots? Is that the best news I can share with you today? (laughs) Jesus can work with us? I'm not calling you an idiot. I'm just saying us, okay? Number four. Uh, And by the way, number three, we're going to come back to, and uh, I think you're going to be shocked at what we find today in a phrase that you've heard over and over again, especially if you grew up in the church. You've heard that you are the salt of the earth. When we get to that today, many of you uh, might rethink what you just said, and this is the shocker statement. You mean there are some spiritual idiots Jesus doesn't want to work with? We're going to talk about that today. Don't stone me yet. Number four, Jesus's earthly ministry was overwhelmingly focused on preparing my ministry. Jesus's earthly ministry was overwhelmingly focused on preparing my ministry. Oh, wow. Looks like about 80% yes. I'm gonna take that back. 70% yes, about 20% no, and 10% I don't know. Okay, good. And number five, good works are very important to God. Good works are very important to God. Ah, this is what I was expecting, a split crowd. If you're not saying yes, you're saying I don't know or no. We're split. This is where we're going to have some revolution today as well, because we're going to see what does Jesus from his own mouth in the red letters talk about how important good works are to God. Our, our problem is, once again, we're part of this pendulum, this theological pendulum, aren't we? And many of you who are like, "Ah, you know, what does he mean?" He always has these horrible trick questions. Many of you are we're struggling with that because we're trying not to be legalist, right? Is Jesus just focus on good works, or on you just being you and being kind and being loving? And that's the problem that we, we have right now as we're in motion of saying, uh, but what are those good works, and, and what are they for? So we're going to take a look at those today and see how Christ tried to, um, tried to put it into a setting so you'd understand the holistic view that he talks about when he's talking about good works. All right. Last week, we started with the Beatitudes. We talked about how the typical use of that construct was in the Greco-Roman stories when this hero would go out and slay a beast or a dragon or or something, and one of the Greek gods are looking down, and they say, wow, that was pretty cool. I can't believe they did something. that I thought that was humanly impossible. And after they accomplish something that is just incredible, the god comes down and says, congratulations, the same word that we use for blessed, makarios. Macarios, because you've done this incredible deed, I'm now going to give you this godly gift. Whether it's a new supernatural power or whether it's some magical uh, talisman or something, they would say, congratulations, because you've done this incredible thing, I'm giving you this. And then Jesus comes along, opens up the Sermon on the Mount with this humorous illustration of saying, God's looking down and saying, congratulations, because you're letting Rome trod all over you, you're going to receive the whole whole earth. Because you're a crybaby, God's going to bless you. Because you're meek, God's going to bless you. And because of that, everyone's kind of doing that little thing, you know, when you, you make a funny noise and the dog lifts up the one ear, looks at you kind of funny. That's how everyone's looking at Jesus during the sermon introduction. So we intros by saying God's kingdom is different than anything you've ever heard before. It's much different than what you've built up God's kingdom to be. You've had great tabernacle services and and the priests have, have tried to read from Old Testament scripture to help you understand who God is, but he's much different and he's much greater. And so he opens up by trying to express how different God's kingdom is. And then he says, now it's time for me to shift into saying, who am I looking for? Remember, this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He doesn't have all of his his disciples yet. And since this is the beginning, it's his chance to say, who do I want to attract and who do I want to work with? So in, in a very unique way, this is Jesus's job interview spun on its head. If you want to work with me, these are the people I'm looking for. And he gets to verses uh, 13 through 16, which many theologians look at as the introduction to the whole of the sermon. This is the introduction to the content of chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And so he starts out with this very unique um, job description. We read it like this in English in Matthew 5:13, which is right here on your study guide. And it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So tell me, many of you have grown up in the church. What have you been taught that this means? You're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again?
2: It's good for nothing.
0: It's thrown out. What have you been brought up to believe that Jesus is saying
2: here? That we are to penetrate people with whom we come in contact to such an extent that they will be changed and have a more flavorful uh, life than they have now and not just be like the rest of us who are blah and care about nothing and go through life and die.
0: Yeah, I love it. So we are supposed to be the seasoning. It makes a difference. Uh my, my wife, her grandma cracks me up every time we're up near Modesto and we eat her cooking. Every time. It's one of two things that she says. I didn't put enough salt in this. I'm so sorry, everybody. I didn't put enough salt. I can't taste this. High. I didn't put enough salt. If she's not saying that, she's saying, Oh, I'm so sorry, I put too much salt in there. Is this too salty? You think this is too salty? I there's nothing I could do. I put too much salt in it. I'm sorry. You can tell if there is or is not salt. And so I, lo- I love what you said, because that's what I've been brought up believing, is that's what Jesus was talking about, is we need to season the world. They need to be able to tell if we're in it or not in it. If we're in the community or not in the community. And I love that, because we should. People should notice if we're not in the community or if we're really saturating the community. Right? They should tell. Anybody else? What have you been taught that this phrase means? You're the salt of the earth.
1: I think it was, um, for me, growing up, it's like you have to be different so people can see that you are Christian. Mm -hmm. And it was focused on that. But now as I am an adult, I think that saltiness means it comes when you allow the Holy Spirit to transform you. And then the person that God is transforming, I don't have to worry about saltiness because it comes naturally. Yeah. Now, my question is, can there be too much salt? Oh. Can we be too salty sometimes?
0: Whoa, okay.
1: I, I would hate N- to be that person. Now you're causing trouble,
0: Norelli. <laughs> Everything was fine when we were encouraged to be salted. Now we're like, are there places that we need to desalt? Because some of our communities are being assaulted by us, yes. <laughs> I'm here on Saturdays. Dark on Mondays. All right. Over here. I think also if you rub too much salt in the wound, it can be extremely uncomfortable. Very much so. Those of us who, uh, of course, grandma has given us her very best uh, home remedy for if you have a cut in your mouth, uh, it will just gargle salt water, right? And you're like, grandma, while you're spewing all the water out, because it hurts, hurts too much. Yes, over here. So I don't have citations for this, but one of the things that I had heard was in that time and place, salt was so valuable and so expensive that the Roman soldiers were actually partly paid in salt. Uh And so there is some some context in in referencing that, saying you are supposed to be valuable or of extreme worth. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually, you're totally correct. That's where we get the, the, the word salary. It comes from the root word for salt. Exactly, and so that's where a lot of Roman soldiers or uh, uh, government officials were paid in salt. Uh, of course, everyone else would, would trade in the salt. Very good. Down here.
1: Jesus says we are the salt of the world. We are not the cook.
0: <laughs> Which, I love that. I love that because who controls how much salt goes in the soup? Thank you. Okay. Good. Hang on to that, because that was really good. Okay, so everything that's been said, as I've gone through a ton of commentaries this past week, those are all spot on. They're all spot on, where uh, theologians believe, yes, that's what Jesus was trying to help his disciples understand. That concept of being Definitely someone who flavors the world, someone whom the, the world can tell that you're there, um, and, and who's in control, all that. But there's another layer that I've missed my entire life, my entire ministry, until a couple of days ago, I started reading through some other commentaries and saying, are you kidding me? How did I ever miss this? There's two different styles of commentaries that, that you can read. They're the ones done by the linguists, and they're the ones that are done by the theologians, and they're not always the same. There is some overlap, but typically, uh, if you read a commentary by a theologian who's trying to wrestle with the theology of this statement, uh, they'll say, yes, uh, and what it's talking about is uh, when Jesus is saying... Uh, but if the salt loses its saltiness, and they go into this whole long explanation about how perhaps it got contaminated with dirt, if it was on the ground and, and that layer between the dirt and whatever. And it goes through this whole uh, gymnastics, theoretical gymnastics, of what Jesus was saying about salt losing its saltiness. There's only one problem. Sodium chloride is always sodium chloride, and it always tastes like sodium chloride. You know that as well as I do. Because even if I dilute sodium chloride in water, I'm just making salt water. If I do what they did in the time of Christ to preserve meat, veggie meat, everyone. um, (laughs) That's why our veggie meat uh, is so high in sodium. It's preservative. But if if you rub salt over the meat, that was a way of preserving it right? And so um, if you eat that steak or or lamb chop, whatever it is, wham chop, um, if you eat that, it's going to taste salty, okay? You're not making the salt taste like steak, you're making the steak taste like salt, right? As long as you have sodium Combined with chloride, which, by the way, those of you that listen to the Wednesday Warm Up, you, you know that sodium is—you can't find it naturally on its own. It's—it's it's very it, the bonds of it are very attractive. It's got—it's got to connect to something, and so when chlorine is around and it comes in contact with chlorine, boom, it makes salt. And as far as uh, trying to disconnect that bond, it's very, very difficult. So, when sodium and and, and chlorine come together, become sodium chloride, even if you put it in the dirt, even uh, if you put it in large quantities of water, you still have salt something. Salt water, salt dirt, salty food, whatever it is. So, most of the commentaries that, that I've read that have tried to do these verbal gymnastics around it, I think have missed something that the linguist found. Because the linguists, when you read their commentaries, you get a whole different story about what Jesus is saying here. Now, Jesus is using a phrase that he did not make up. This phrase of, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again, was a fairly common phrase in the time of Christ. But it's not talking about salt. The construct of this phrase is very similar to ones that we have today. for example, if I were to say that guy is two fries short of a happy meal <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And possibly someday in the in the distant future if uh, if some great Anthropologist, if God chooses not to come before then, he looks back and says, Oh, these people are talking in the Bible lab about someone being two fries short of a happy meal. We know what they're talking about. Because in their day, we can find from historical records that one of the worst places you can go to get your order correct is a drive-thru. And what they're talking about here is the consistent experience of poor young children as they go through the drive-thru of getting an inadequate number of fries in their meal. That's what I feel like when I read the other theologians' commentaries after I've read the linguist. Because what Jesus is saying is very much like that, like saying he's a couple of bricks short of a load. He's not playing with all the cards in the deck, it's an idiom, an idiomatic statement that is meant to say something else. You'll know exactly what it means when you see the word that we uh, translate as loses its saltiness (laughs) in Greek. Uh, and you guys are going to be shocked. You know a Greek word today. You, you might have used it this morning, and you might be thinking about it when you think of me. When you read the word moronthe, <laughs> it's Greek, "Moron," Moronthe Moranthe is used twice in the New Testament to be translated as lose its saltiness. There's two other places it's used, though. Romans chapter 1, and 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20. And in those two places, it's actually translated the way that its other uh, roots of, of this word, maranthe, are, uh, are also used. The word actually means dull, foolish, idiotic. This phrase if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be salted again, was exactly the same as saying, stupid is as stupid does. You know that phrase, stupid is as stupid does. Because what this phrase meant, you can't make salt not salty. And back then, their idea of chemistry was not even anywhere close to our idea of these chemical bonds and stuff. But they just knew you can't make salt not salty. So the phrase of saying, "If you're salt," and it was always pointed to a person, you would say to someone, "Hey, <laughs> as your salt becomes saltless, I can't resalt you." You're telling a young, foolish person, or an old, foolish person, uh, <laughs> "I'm sorry, but you've lost your salt." OK? We even have phrases the man's not worth his salt, right? These are derivatives of this very same idiomatic phrase. There is a Jewish story that comes from the early first century, right after Jesus died. It's right around the time that the Bible's written, where it shows this idiom is very common because there's a story in response to this idiom in which a young fool comes up and asks a rabbi, how do you make salt salty again if it's unsalty? The rabbi replies, oh, that's easy. You just mix in the afterbirth of a mule, and it will become salty again. And the joke is there because a mule is sterile. A mule can't have afterbirth, so you can't make saltless salt salty again. With all that in mind, have your comment cards and question cards ready. (laughs) And we'll try to get to all of them. But the question is, because we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is is saying a funny statement. Like I said, about 80% of the red letters in the Bible are humorous statements. Jesus is getting the people laughing here when he says, first of all, you're the salt of the earth. That's not funny. That's the setup. Everything that we said up to now about what did Jesus mean about you're the salt of the earth, all the comments we've had so far, is what Jesus is talking about. And then he adds the joke. Basically saying, you're the salt of the earth, but stupid is as stupid does. If you're a spiritual moron, say, if you're a spiritual moron, I can't help you. One of my best friends, he's threatened for years to write a book, which is entitled, uh, why didn't Jesus ever write a book? It's it's a great one, as he's outlined it for me. Ultimately, we're his books. Um, but if you look here and ask the question, uh, would Jesus ever write Christianity for dummies? Here, Jesus says, uh-uh. I'm sorry, I can't. I, I can't deal with it. Because... I'm looking for people who want to be salt. But if you, in your spiritual stupidity, decide not to be salty, I can't salt you. There's nothing I can do to make you salty. Knowing that now, what do you think about Jesus' comments here? What do you see in his character here that you possibly haven't seen before? What is Jesus saying about us his disciples what does he want what's he looking for and what's he not looking for comment cards back here question
1: i just have a question is a spiritual moron (laughs) one who hungers and thirsts
0: that would be awesome if it was (laughs) but from the context here and let me just say this right away i'm so excited we could say moron so many times in 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 a bible study You have no idea how many times I've had to edit that out of a Bible study when I'm talking to people. Um, So I'm excited today. Your question is, uh, does it relate with, with that same, and it doesn't. In context, this is not a positive statement. It is just like saying, they're a couple of fries short of a happy meal. It is not in any way a hopeful statement. It's saying they're hopeless. They're a hopeless idiot. And Jesus is saying here, there are people who spiritually don't get it. They're spiritual morons. He's not talking about people's mental acuity or their IQ and their their ability to think. He's saying there are some people who are highly intelligent, but spiritual morons.
2: Anesio. Oh, my comment is more a question. Good. Like you said here, and I I think I understood isn't it be the same what happened to Jesus in Nicodemus? Yes. You need to be born again? Yes.
0: Very, very similar. Where he's talking about this phraseology of you need a restart. Here, he doesn't necessarily go into the proactive statement. This is a very reactive statement of him saying, I can already tell. I'm just starting out my ministry, and I can already tell there's, there's a big number of you that uh, you're just not going to get it. You're never going to get it because you're so on one track. You've figured out how to get spiritually what you want, and you will not stop and learn. And I think that's what what Jesus is talking about here by saying there's some of you who just will not, by your own choice, ever be salty. To me, I went to the next statement that, I think Jesus would make, and it's, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Yeah? Yeah. And he goes on in that text, if any of you listen and take action. Because there's a group of people that hear him knocking but say, I don't know,
2: I'm probably just a solicitor. Right? Over here. For me personally... Can I learn something new from approaching it from a different aspect? Can I learn anything about Christianity by talking to a Muslim? Will that teach me anything about Mm. God? Or am I so blinded I don't want to have anything to do with a Muslim?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a a good point. And I would respond to that, well, how strong is your faith? I mean, how, how strongly do you believe what you believe? Because, quite frankly, we were called to be in the world, but not of the world. But we're still called to be in the world. We focused on the not of the world part, but we've totally forgotten that we are vessels of the kingdom. We are boats that only serve their purpose when they're in the water.
2: As a young man, I was, throughout my youth, I went to parochial, Catholic parochial schools. We were told never step inside a Protestant church. Why? because we might get contaminated. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay cuz we were told the same thing about the Catholic church. So. <laughs> hey,
0: you think I'm joking? Yeah. <laughs> Who's over here?
1: Yes. I wonder er, it's a question if we make it too complicated. I am always back at be as little children. And I, I think they get it because in the warm-up, it's the combination of sodium with chlorine, a toxic subject or element yes. that the change occurs. And I think that we attach too much to the statement of the moron. I would say the moron is he or she who has not invited the sodium, the Holy Spirit in to change them. And when we look at it that way, it's not, you're just stupid as a friend over on the other side of the lab always says, I can't get there from here. Or how do you get there from here? Because what you're saying spiritually makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And unless you've invited the Holy Spirit in as that sodium, you're just chlorine trying to pretend to be uh, salt. (laughs) Exactly. Thank
0: you. And extra credit points for um, listening to the Wednesday (laughs) warm-up and actually applying it here. You you caught it because I was hinting at it. I was seeing if someone was going to say it today. Thank you. Sodium chloride, if they are separate, the chlorine is toxic. And the question is, what can we have as people of faith? What can we have that's separate from the compound that would be toxic? And many of you uh, are just coming back to, to church. The Bible Lab is your transitional uh, step back into church because you've seen the combination of not just the rules, not just the doctrines, but you're seeing this loving relationship with God. And it's it's salty. It's it's, it's good. It's salt. The, the reason why they say you, you can't just eat one Lay's potato chip is not because of the potato. <laughs> it's that salt, isn't it? And so that combination makes people hungry and thirsty for more because it is truly that experience that can only come when you compound your beliefs with your God and a relational experience so that the beliefs help your relationship and it's not your beliefs giving you a relationship, if that makes sense. Yes.
1: How do you reconcile that with the references from the Bible and from commentaries that say they threw salt all over the earth after wars mm-hmm. um, to prevent anything from growing there? They poisoned yeah. the earth with salt. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile that?
0: Uh, fortunately, I don't have to, because <laughs> yeah. Jesus did right here in in this phrase. There are multiple uses in Jesus's day for salt. In fact. What I found through reading commentaries is there were at least 10 uses for salt in the time of Jesus that the people would automatically think about. It's interesting because Jesus is purposely vague when he speaks in parables and uses object lessons because he also understands there's multiple applications uh, to these object lessons. So Jesus, even in this text, says you can be thrown out. What they would do is when they would store salt the, salt, the salt that was contaminated, the salt that's closest to the earth. There's a story about this, um, this guy that lived uh, in, in Greece, and he was an import-export guy, and he would be paid by the Greek government to import this salt, Well, he thought he was pretty crafty, and he was going to basically swindle the government out of a lot of money, and so he imported a large amount and only shipped a a, a bulk of it to the government warehouses, and he rented out 27 cottages in, in the mountainside, and he filled these cottages with these dirt floors. He filled them with salt, but what he found is all the salt. He lost a lot of money because all the salt that was closest to the ground became contaminated with that clay that was there. And so what they would do in Jesus' time is, if it was contaminated, is they would use it for something useful because you wouldn't want to put it on or in your food because you know, it would, it would make your, your food taste like dirt or, or whatever is close by. And so they would use it because the chlorine in it was a very active agent in making sure that it would change the pH balance of the soil so nothing would grow. And that's how you would create your sidewalks, your paths. So we don't have to reconcile something that Jesus did right here. Because when you look at all the things that we talked about, what is Jesus talking about when he says you are the salt of the earth? He's not only saying you can be a preservative of your community, You can be that salt that preserves, keeps the devil's rot from happening in people's faith systems in in your community. But you can also be all these other things. But if you live in a level, because you are not distinguishing yourself as salt, if you live in a level that is so much part of the earth that you become part of the earth, that's not going to work. And so it's very clear that Jesus is saying, look, if you live your life in in a way to where you're not trying to be distinct, and and Norelli even mentioned this earlier when she's talking about, you know, uh, I was raised to believe this meant we were supposed to be a peculiar people, uh, to, to be set apart. It's true. Jesus wants a people who are distinct. I don't I don't think we've always defined peculiar as the same definition Jesus wants to have because a lot of times we define peculiar as just plain weird. We're we're different, okay? And Jesus doesn't want us different. He wants us specifically peculiar and, and, and to flavor the area. But if we ourselves allow ourselves to be so contaminated that we're no longer distinct, you can't separate the salt from the earth, Uh, then it is useless. And it's used for the only thing you can use it for, which is to clear a path for people to walk. Exactly. Thank you. Jordy. Yeah. I think he might have also uh, assumed that Christians would raise people's blood pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for that, Jordy. I was waiting for it. (laughs) going back to yes or no, question number one, it's best not to, no. You can raise people's blood pressure. And actually, all of you doctors here, you know there are patients that you're trying to raise their blood pressure because their blood pressure is too low. And there's other patients you're trying to lower their blood pressure because their stress is too high. So where is that balance? And so there are times that because we don't want to raise too much blood pressure, we don't raise any blood pressure, and the people are comatose around us. There are some people that God puts in our path that we need to raise the blood pressure, and there are other people that we need to help lower the stress and lower that blood pressure. And that's, I think, also what Norelli was talking about, uh, how much salt. Yeah, what's our approach? How, how salty or desalted are we? Yes, sir.
2: Jesus... Apostles that he selected; these were bright people. Matthew was a tax collector. You had to be able to add and subtract, multiply and divide. You had to somebody good with numbers. Peter owned his own boat, middle class. Mm-hmm. In, in order to do that, he had to have some brains about him. And his brother Andrew, you know, these were not a bunch of dummies <laughs> that he picked up in, around the Sea of Galilee. Yeah,
0: a- absolutely. And you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Because Jesus chose all different levels of intelligences because Matthew could not do taxes. You would not want Matthew, I mean, excuse me, Peter could not do taxes. You would not want Peter doing your taxes. You would want Matthew to do your taxes. But if you want to start a business and you want to see what are the principles so that you could build a two-story house right on the Sea of Galilee, um, you'd want to talk to Peter. But Peter wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed when it came to math, Um, He was a couple of fries short of a Happy Meal (laughs) on math. But Jesus chose individuals, hand-selected individuals who were good and intelligent at certain areas of life so that in that perspective of life, they'd be able to help people understand how to plug God in to those areas of life. Exactly. Back here.
1: In Mark 9.50, it says, salt is good, but it loses its saltiness How can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And then i like Colossians 4, 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer
0: everyone. Very good. Very good. Uh, The other text where uh, it uses the same as as the Mark 9 verse is Luke chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. Uh, It's the same phrase. Stupid is, stupid does. Um, so read through it that way. What is Jesus saying? We have Jesus as such a stiff guy, because many of us grew up with those Jesus movies where the guy, literally, he needed a coffee. The guy was so monotone. Seriously, he just, follow me. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, <laughs> wasn't his behavior. Remember, the things he's accused of are the things we can look at and say this was his personality. What was Jesus accused of? He was accused of being a wine bibber. Was Jesus a drunk? No. But his critics said, that guy's having too much fun. He's acting crazy. So Jesus, in a Sermon on the Mount, is using this terminology. People are like, can you say that in a sermon? I don't think that's very appropriate. So he shows a bit of his personality. If you're going to follow me, you got to understand. We're going to have some fun, and we're going to look at life a little bit differently, and we're going to call it like it is. Stupid is and stupid does. I'm going to work with you if you work with me. But if you don't have the spiritual aptitude to do something fresh, innovative, and new, it's probably best to keep doing what you're doing. That's what he meant by this phrase, if your salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? I want to work with you. I want you to flavor, to to be a seasoning in your community that people say, I can tell when you're here because it's much better. And this this kingdom you're talking to me about is addictive. No one can eat just one. Tell me more. Tell me more. Open up another bag. Jesus says, that's what I'm looking for. And then he goes on to his next phrase in verses 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father.
2: Awesome.
1: One of the things that you're hinting at, I think, is the ability of salt to make people or animals thirsty. Yes. And one of the things we can do as Christians is turn the gospel into information, which sounds a lot like salt becoming unsalty. Mm -hmm. If we try to convince people that we have correct information Mm -hmm. instead of we have good news.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, because when when I ask you about your BMW, um, I'm I'm not asking for a technical spec of your BMW, and (laughs) unless that's what you're really into, that's not what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me about the drive. Oh my word, the drive! I drive a Prius C. (laughs) I don't even know what it means to merge. I just let everyone in that lane pass. <laughs> and then I and then I go to the left. <laughs> but you're BMW. You're like, are you kidding? Nobody passes me. I know how to merge. And you talk to me about the ultimate driving experience. You don't tell me about the ultimate driving engineering. And a lot of times we focus on the engineering of Christ and not on the experience of Christ.
1: Harvey. The salt and the light. Um, The light helps you to see what's beautiful. Mm. The salt helps you to taste what's delicious. Yes. And together, they help you to see the glory that the cook puts in or the beauty that he puts. Yes and to experience it.
0: I love that, Harvey, because it's the holistic experience. When John's disciples came to Jesus later on and say, John the Baptist is wondering, are, are you, at, are you or is there another to come? Jesus says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Jesus here is saying, tell people what you see and taste. It's this holistic experience. It's not just information. It's not just belief. It's not just doctrine. It's not just the king came and died and rose, so I have a a chance. It's the whole experience of tasting, taste and see that the Lord is good. Exactly. So then, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where we indoctrinate people Mm -hmm. with a bunch of lessons and say, do you get it? Good, then you can be baptized. Mm -hmm. Because that's how it was for me. You memorize these texts, mm-hmm. you uh, recite them back to your pastor or whoever your spiritual leader is, mm-hmm. and then you get to be baptized. Yeah. And then you graduate from Bible study. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's not part of your life yet. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are going to be really excited about what your church, Loma Linda University Church, is starting mid-April. We've been working the last year and a half to answer that question. Uh, we call it the 12 People You Love. Um, and it's going to rock your world. It's going to change not only your experience of church, it's going to change the way people who are either not or barely connected to church see church and see you and see this discipleship journey we're on. And so I love that statement because it shows where we've been, but The last phrase we ever want to use here or anywhere else, and I don't allow it in my ministry teams, I don't allow the phrase, well, that's the way we've always done it. You want to kill a program and kill people? Do it the same way you've always done it. Now, I want you to see something real quick here. Um, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Here's a problem. In John chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. Uh, Did you make a mistake? There's a a wrong pronoun used here or there. Uh, Is is Jesus saying, no, I'm I'm contradicting what I said in my first sermon. Is is he changing it back? He's had a change of heart. Or is he saying something inclusive by saying, you're the light of the world and I'm the light of the world. One of the things we have to understand is when did Jesus say and what were the conditions when Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Here's the interesting thing I learned. Jesus, in John chapter 8, he stands up in the, in, the, in the midst of an area, right next to the temple treasury. The night before, there's this great party. It's called the illumination of the temple, is one of the translations that they say. The illumination of the temple. And what they had is these four great big, they, they call them candelabras, but it's different how, from what you would envision. These giant golden stands, they have these giant bowls that can hold 65 liters of oil. Have A little wick off the end. Four of them on the four sides of the area of the treasury, of the temple. And in that place, they would put these ladders up and these priests, these young priests, would go up the ladders and light these huge bowls of oil. These... Candelabra stands are so high that even though you're not in the temple, you can see above the temple wall, you see this flame just licking up into the night sky. At that same time, dancing around the area right outside the temple there were priests that had torches and they're dancing, singing, praising, and priests would would play harps and lyres and tambourines and all these instruments. It was a huge party. That all happened the night before Jesus is at the very same spot. And while the soot from the candelabras is there and the telltale smoke is still rising from those candelabras, Jesus says, I want to explain something to you. Because the reason why you have this party called the illumination of the temple is because you're trying to reminisce a time that goes all the way back to Solomon and then all the way back to Moses, a time when God's presence actually came down in the form of a pillar of fire and God's presence was not only felt around you, but it was seen in your very presence. And so they would have this annual party, the illumination of the temple, to commemorate God's fiery presence, the light of God being right there over the treasury of the temple. Jesus stands up and says, guys, uh, let me help you understand something. Remember that party last night? It's all about Jerusalem being the light of the world because their teaching at that time is that at the appropriate time, God would raise up, not in a physical sense, but in a theological sense, would raise up Jerusalem so that the world would look and see the light of God shining from the temple and that the world would be convinced that their God was the one only true God because the light of their beliefs would shine out into a world And all the world would come to Jerusalem to meet the one true God. Jesus stands up and says, "Um, hang on a second. No, that party, that was great. But I am the light of the world. Interesting thing here is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, okay, I'm not going to hog this thing. This whole thing, pillar of fire, it's me. It was my presence in there. It was awesome. But while I'm standing in front of you in the flesh, I want, to, I want to share what's to come. You won't know about this in, until I'm already ascended into heaven. Six weeks later, you guys are going to be in an in a upper room, and these pillars of fire are going to come above you just like the temple, and then you will go be the temple of God wherever you go. I'm going to change things because you, you yourself, are the light of the world. Because instead of having everyone look to Jerusalem to find God, And the world come to Jerusalem, I'm going to send you from Jerusalem out into the world. It's completely different than what the pastors have been preaching. Instead of everyone coming here, you guys are going to all go out there. And you are going to be that temple that every priest has dreamed of having. Where all the world looks and sees the brightness of God's glory and God's presence. You are going to have that experience. And that's what he's saying when he says, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, that's the phrase that they would use for Jerusalem. Being this city, this light, it can't be hidden. The world will see it. There's no way they can deny it. Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Once again, a very common idiomatic phrase, which says, you would say it to somebody if you're saying, look, I'm giving you this, but I'm not going to hold you back. This is your time. It's not my time. I'm not going to give you a lamp and then not let you shine. This is your chance. Shine. You don't have to worry about anything else. Just, I lit you. Now go shine. I wish we had time today to talk about everyone in the house, but I want you to pray through that this week as you look ahead and you say, God, what are you doing in my sphere of influence? Where you have placed my lamp, you want me to shine. What light in my sphere of influence do you need to shine to have an effect to help people see what you've always wanted them to see? But because of this world of darkness, they just couldn't see it. That's our prayer for this week. Well, I'll be praying for you as well this week and please pray for me that all of us together will be such a bright light in our communities and really help people understand the character of God the way that God wants us to really express it through love in our communities. Now this next episode I can't wait for you to listen to because Jesus finally gets to what is the thesis of his entire sermon. It's one verse. It's the one verse that everything, all chapter 5, 6, and 7, the entire sermon, hang on. What is he trying to say, and what will he keep coming back again and again, looking at several different camera angles to make sure you understand what he wants you to understand about the most important thing to God. And that's what we're going to cover in episode 27. So we hope that you'll come back and receive a blessing in hearing Jesus' first sermon like you've never heard before. God bless you guys.
1: Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.